0: Hello, and welcome to this live recording from Mount Pleasant Baptist Church. This message was given by Graham Maybury at our Burragoon campus. So sit back, listen in, and enjoy what God's got to say to you.
1: Rick Warren says the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. Jesus said, out of the abundance of our heart, our mouth speaks. The Proverbs say, above all else, guard your heart. Not guard your money, not guard your Facebook profile above all else guard your heart. Why? Because everything you do flows from it. So in this new series on the kings of the Old Testament where we, we want to look at some of the Old Testament kings and see what the Lord might teach us from how they lived their lives, we take the biblical focus and we focus on their hearts. So it's Heart of Kings, this new series that I have the privilege of introducing, and we start with the very first king of Israel. They never had kings up until this guy. King Saul, and the issue of insecurity. Now last week, on Father's Day, the opening screen read, The perfect father, Nick Scott. (laughs) Nick was kind enough to point out that he didn't actually mean that. Well today, the opening screen says... Insecurity, Graham Mabry. (laughs) And when I I first noticed that, my response was, well, harsh but fair. (laughs) Harsh but fair. I know insecurity and I are old acquaintances. It's unintended but accurate. I contend with insecurity at a deep level in some areas. See, I'm absolutely certain God loves you. I'm totally committed to what what G.K. Chesterton called the furious love of God. My passion is to see you discover and experience how his huge heart longs to help and heal the bruised and the battered and the broken and the burdened. God has a single, relentless stance towards you. He loves you single, relentless. He loves you. That's from Brennan Manning's Ragamuffin Gospel. It's a book I love. He wrote it for the bedraggled and the beat up and the burned out and those still shifting the heavy suitcase from one hand to the other. I just relate to that deeply. But I discovered something on the journey. Back in the day, before we came to this church, uh, we worked uh, in a, a ministry with a beautiful couple. Uh, particularly the lady in this couple, she just seemed to be one of those those people that had it all. That sort of ageless beauty, grace. She was a gracious person. She was a very kind person. She seemed incredibly competent. She was hospitable. It was just you kind of think you're too good to be true. And then, and really genuinely, sweet, sweet lady. And then one day we sat with her in her home while she shared a coffee with us and cried and cried and poured out how she saw herself. Dumpy, clumsy, inco- every, total polar opposite of what I th- Merle and I thought her view of herself would be. A Christian leader of leaders who has led leaders across this nation I heard speak once. And he said, my life is proof that you can come from a loving Christian home, have great success in your career, and still be deeply insecure. I was chatting to Simon and Gladys uh, when, about this thing about the screen is going to say insecurity Graham Mabry uh, but that's okay because I'm, I'm well acquainted and they were both kind enough to say so are we. we all are and Kelly who's done a brilliant job on the screens for, for this week as you'll soon see uh, she, when, when we were going through the screens I said the same thing and she said Graham we're all we're all acquainted with that. How many people have insecurity? All of us. I googled insecurity and I got 110 million results in 0.58 seconds. Those are some of the little thought bubbles that Kelly put on there for me. Those things that run through. Let me give you some more. Despite your accomplishments, deep down do you feel a fraud just waiting to be exposed? Do you feel you don't deserve lasting love and people will desert and leave you? Are you afraid to venture out and meet others or to invite people into your home because you just feel you don't measure up? Do you feel overweight, boring, beige, stupid, ugly? Now (laughs) by contrast, one of our grandsons received a pair of socks as a gift when he was a tiny little fella and for some reason they just appealed. He loved them, the black socks. And so he came out and modelled his black socks for us because he loved them so much. The interesting thing is, he was only wearing his black socks. And he stood before us naked and unashamed, as it says in Genesis 2. When I look through the scriptures, I only find three people who ever had that experience as adults. Adam and Eve before they rebelled and Jesus. They lost, and Jesus offers to restore to us what they lost, our deepest need, to know love that will never go away. The old hymn some used to sing in years gone by, love that will not let me go, written when someone was bereaved, by the way. Sorry, disappointed in love, love that will not let me go. How does Saul's life speak into that? Well, let's start with a background briefing. When you do the kings in the Bible, it's, it's very tempting to divide them into goodies and baddies. Know, kind of was, this king was good, he was bad. He was good, he was bad. He walked with the Lord, he didn't. But it's much more complex than that. The Bible's not a Western or Star Wars. It's easy in Westerns because the goodies wear white hats and the baddies wear black hats and there's no good in the baddies and there's no bad in the goodies. Star Wars is a little confusing, it's like a western in the sky, but it, the, the, the baddies wear white there, which is a bit tricky, because the stormtroopers the storm are bad, then and the Jedi and Luke and all, they're good. But the scripture is far, and Saul is one of the most complex characters in the whole of the Bible. He is a fate-driven farm boy, never wanted to be king, never thought about it. He's driven by fate to become a reluctant ruler. He's a tragic villain. He's a degenerate madman and he's much, much more. He's a study in contrast. He's very controlled and he's violently out of control. He's promptly obedient and he's persistently disobedient. He's empathetic and he's moody. He's thoughtful and he's impulsive. He's merciful and he's murderous. In other words, he's one of us. He's human and I've, it's very, sometimes you see see Paul, Saul is almost presented as though God created him to be an object, to fail so he could be an object lesson for all of us. Of course that's not so. I've put up there three of the things that are true of Saul. He fought valiantly, 1 Samuel 14 tells us that. In fact, his victories over Moab, the Ammonites, Edom and the Philistines gave Israel peace on all its borders. He ruled simply, unlike David and Solomon, he didn't have a massively expensive palace. He didn't have a harem. He didn't have a major impost on his people. In fact, when they excavated his palace at Gibeah, they discovered it was just a simple rustic fortress. He ruled simply, didn't burden his people. And he was loved in death. Men whose lives had been spared, valiant men, by his mercy and his military skill, when he was killed uh, or died, they actually marched through the night at risk of their lives to get his body and those of his sons and give them a proper burial. And then they fasted seven days. David mourned extensively for Saul. He was loved in death. Now we've only got time for one incident from his life but without, I can't assume that you all know the story of Saul and without some background it won't make as much, it won't be as helpful or as easy to understand. So let's do, uh, let's do a flyover of Saul's life at about 10,000 metres and hopefully looking out of the window you'll see enough of interest that you'll want to go back and check it out in 1 Samuel's self because it is a great story to look at in scripture. Um, his dad was Kish, he's described as a man of standing. Saul was as handsome, a young, as handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel, head and shoulders above everyone else. So the Facebook profile was pretty good. He was sent by dad to find some lost donkeys. Remember I said he had no no idea about king. He went out to look for some lost donkeys. <clears throat> Spent a long time looking for them, couldn't find them, and they thought, well, we'd better go home because dad will be forgetting the donkeys and worried about us. But his servant says, no, let's go and see the seer, the prophet. That was Samuel, but Saul didn't know that. So they go and see Samuel, and God's already said to Samuel, tomorrow I'm going to send a, a young man to you. He's from Benjamin, and he's the, the first king. So Samuel says to Saul, listen, don't worry about the donkeys, they're found. But the whole of Israel's hope is on you. Israel's future is on your shoulders. And Saul goes, a big pun, excuse me? Israel, I don't think so. I'm a Benjamite. Now Benjamin was the smallest tribe in Israel. There was a shameful incident in its past. And he said, I'm from the most insignificant clan in the smallest tribe. I don't think so. Nevertheless, Samuel anoints him with olive oil privately, gives him three signs, very specific, names, dates, people, this is exactly what will happen and where it will happen. And when it does, as Samuel says to Saul, once these things happen, do whatever your hand finds to do for God is with you. And as Samuel uh, sends Saul off, as Saul turns to leave Samuel, the Bible says God changed Saul's heart, very significant changed his heart and the signs are fulfilled and the spirit of God comes on him in power so he goes home and he tells his dad about the donkeys but not the king bit then Saul calls together Samuel calls together the whole nation and they cast lots to find the new king and Benjamin is chosen by lot and then Saul's clan is chosen and then Saul but they can't find him where is Saul I love this bit God says he's hiding in the luggage So the lesson here is if you're going to play Heidi, don't include God. That doesn't work. So they find him among the luggage and bring him out and they anoint him king in front of it. But not everybody's convinced. Some despise him. Nevertheless, his first military victory is stunning. The Spirit of God comes on him in power and uh, Samuel renews his kingship in this great celebration and some of the people say, listen, those people that wouldn't have you as king, let's bring them out and execute them. Saul shows mercy in that situation and then God gives gives him a mission. God gives him an assignment. Through Samuel, God sends sends Saul on a mission. He says, remember the Amalekites, how cruel they were to my people when they came out of Egypt. I promised Moses I would deal with them. Well, now is the time. Go and deal with the Amalekites, but like Jericho, take no loot. Like Jericho, they see how good it is and they take some. They take some. In fact, they took everything that was good. And they gave God everything that was despised and weak. Now we come to our reading. After that sad incident, we come to our, our, our passage for today. And Jody Bennett is going to read it to us, I believe. Thank you, Jody.
0: Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel I regret that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was angry and he cried out to the Lord all that night. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul. But he was told, Saul's gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone on down to Gilgal. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you, I have carried out the Lord's instructions. But Samuel said, What then is this bleating of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul answered, The soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God but we totally destroyed the rest. Enough, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. Samuel said, Although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. He sent you on a mission saying, Go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Wage war against them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. The soldiers took the sheep and the cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God in Gilgal. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the men, and so I gave in to them. Now I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to him, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel.
1: Thanks, Jodie. That was a great? great reading. You just get a sense of what's, what's going on there so clearly. Thank you. What a tragic conversation. How does it come to this? This is the man... Whose heart God changed. This is the man on whom the Spirit came in power. Well, it still does happen, all too often. It happens today. Dr. Robert J. Clinton is, sorry, Dr. J. Robert Clinton is professor of leadership at Fuller Theological Seminary, and in some recent work he points out more than 70, 70% of leaders do not finish well. I remember speaking with a woman many years ago back before um, uh, the I st- came to Mount Pleasant actually, that far back, and she'd made contact via the radio program and was just un- kind of downloading. Uh, she'd been in a, a, an inappropriate relationship with a pastor and she said he would leave me and go and preach and people would come to faith. She was kind of puzzled. I said to her, look, anyone who's in public ministry very quickly learns that whether God uses you in that format is no guide of what's happening inside. God's spoken through a donkey before him, he doesn't mind doing it again. He often says, because of the hearts of those people, it pleases me to meet them through you and I'll deal with you later. Gene Edwards wrote a fabulous book called A Tale of Three Kings and in it he says this, there is a vast difference between the outward clothing of the Spirit's power and the inward filling of the Spirit's life. In the first, despite the power, the hidden heart may remain unchanged. In the first battle, Saul is totally secure in God totally securing God, i found the place by the way, he worships with Samuel who renews his kingship in this great celebration and then when they say let's execute the people who opposed you he shows mercy, he says no one shall be put to death this day for this day the Lord has rescued Israel. Now when Samuel comes to find Saul he's told he has set up a monument in his own honour. A monument to himself. He still looks great. He's had a total victory. He still sounds great. When Samuel comes, the Lord bless you. But God says he's turned from me. He's turned away. Saul is somehow finding his validation identity and self-role in his sorry his, his identity, his validation, and his self-worth in his role as king. If you're going to set up a monument to yourself, you have to do certain things and the first is you've got to make sure that the people are impressed. There's no point, someone's got to keep the pigeons off the statue and there's no point putting up a flag if nobody comes to salute. So you've got to make sure that people are impressed with what's happening. And uh, the... The, uh, the, uh, when, the, when, when Saul begins his ministry, God gave him this wonderful gift of empathy, a God-given gift of empathy. Now that empathy has become crippling people-pleasing. Did you notice when Jodie read to us, when he finally does confess, I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. He then says, I was afraid of the men and so I gave in to them. Proverbs says, Fear of man will prove to be a snare. Ben was saying, after, just in between the services, how it struck him as we were considering this this morning how on Facebook, you kind of you do build a monument to yourself in the profile, don't you? And you're concerned, and there's actually, you can pay companies now to have robots to just keep automatically liking your posts so you can get your post numbers up. Fear of man will prove to be a snare. And his focus, even in his confession, is on the people. We didn't go as far as verse 30, but there he says this. All right, Samuel, I've sinned, but please honour me before the elder of my people and before Israel. By contrast, David, when confronted with a prophet, said, God, I've only sinned against you. The second thing, if you're going to set up a monument to yourself, you've got to guard against all perceived threats. Have you ever suggested a change? And um, it was just a simple suggestion. Suggest a change and you meet fierce opposition. You're organising a search party for your head. It's on my shoulders a minute ago. Or you serve selflessly but you encounter resentment. I can see some of you. Little nods. Oh, yeah, I know that. Yeah, well, you just ran into someone who's guarding a monument. Saul squanders the amazing gift of David. This this incredible young man comes into his service. And all Saul can do is relentlessly hunt him to kill him. Even though David twice spares Saul's life when the people with him are saying, hey, listen, God has delivered this man to you. Knock him off. David calls Saul father. But as Bill Johnson points out Saul didn't have a father's heart If he had a father's heart he would have delighted in his son He had an older brother's heart He had a heart that was insecure, religious driven by competition and threatened And so Saul's life spirals tragically down Insecurity becomes jealousy and eventually all-encompassing paranoia rules his life Rash outbursts eventually escalate to mass murder. See, insecurity impoverishes you and imprisons you and finally implodes because that's exactly what it's designed to do. This doesn't happen by accident. Tim Keller says this, the disintegration of the career and ultimately the life of the one who was once small in his own eyes can be plotted against his self deceptive attempts to magnify his own image. See, God in our reading says, he has not carried out my instructions. Saul says, I have carried out the Lord's instructions. Now, the doesn't, Bible doesn't say whether he believed that or not, but it doesn't matter. Whether he believed it or whether he was bluffing, either way, he's been deceived. Either way, a liar is at work. The thief who comes only to steal and kill and destroy to this day. See, the similarity between this and Eden is stunning and Jericho. Why? Well, they're given the same choice. God says to Adam and Eve, you can have everything but not this. He says to Saul, I'll be with you in every battle but take nothing this time. In Jericho, don't take any of the loot. Like Jericho, here... They see that it is good, like Eve, when she saw the fruit was good. Because the liar said, has God really said that? And then when they're challenged, in all cases, they blame others. As you heard Jodie read, Saul says, I did obey the Lord. It's the soldiers who took the best of the sheep. And I love the way she read Samuel's interjection. See, Samuel cuts right in the middle of Saul's, it wasn't me, it was them. And the word he says is enough. And that word in Hebrew is rafo. And it's exactly the same word, as you'll see there on the screen, as be still and know that I am God. So in that psalm, God is saying enough. Know that I am God. I think one of the reasons it's so important we come together like this and celebrate as the collected people of God is it gives us a chance to stop the endless chatter of ourself and the liar and let the Holy Spirit say enough. Hear me. Listen to what I am saying to you. And what the Hebrew says is much gutsier than the the English. To make sense in English, they have to translate it as 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 a simile, sorry. So in the NIV, it says, rebellion is like the sin of divination. Arrogance is like the evil of idolatry. What the Hebrew is saying is this. No, no, no. Rebellion, divination. Arrogance is the evil of idolatry. See, divination is seeking direction from sources other than God. An idol is anything or anyone that's more important than God. Putting someone or something in God's place. So when Samuel says to obey is better than sacrifice, what he's pointing up is when I disobey, when Saul disobeyed, when I disobey, I make my will superior to my father's will. I actually make my broken self-centred wisdom Govern over his omniscient, selfless, perfect wisdom. I enthrone myself as God. Now, what I do is I climb into the car of my life and punch in my GPS. The only problem is my GPS is corrupt, it's corrupted data. There's a little Keith Green, there's a phrase from a Keith Green song just kept coming back to me again and again all this week as I prepared and it says, it's so hard to see when my eyes are on me. See, insecurity traps me with me. It puts me in with me. I'm phony, I'm inadequate, I'm inferior, I'm ugly, I'm stupid, I'm boring, I'm all of that and what I can sometimes be driven to do is get involved in more and more spiritual programs, more and more church activity, more and longer and longer formal prayers, trying to construct a picture of myself within which I can deposit my self-worth. Keith Farmer gave, he was talking once, and as he was speaking, just had this wonderful moment of realisation that I pray some of you will have today. What he said was, you know that sense that you don't measure up, all of that stuff, It's true (laughs) you don't and it's good news. It's true you don't measure up and it's good news. In the issues of life like grace and love, we do not measure up. We have to receive before we can give. Jesus said freely you have received, freely give. There is only one way out of insecurity and it's that way that is the only way out this locks you in with all that stuff that's insecure this just has you listening to the liar who's the father of lies but this surrendering to god receiving living here that is the only place of security the only place all soul not easy to say i don't do it But Saul just simply needed to say, Father, I was hiding in the luggage. You've given me a clear instruction. Help me do it exactly. Not to modify it, not alter it. Do what you said. This relationship to God, in all of these studies of the kings we're going to do, it's not democracy. The relationship is not democracy. C.S. Lewis wrote a great little um, essay. It's not a book. It's it's an article, an essay. He called it equality. And he said, many people are Democrats because they think humans are so wonderful. We all deserve a say. He said, I'm a Democrat because humans are so fallen. No one can be trusted with absolute power. But he said, democracy is a safety net. It's medicine. But you don't grow on it. You can't grow on medicine. He said you only grow on food and we only only grow when we realise we're created to serve a king. We're created to serve a king and when we realise that we grow. Samuel told Israel not to have a king and one of the reasons was he said kings will cost you. A king will take your sons, he'll take your daughters, a king will take your money, a king will take your life in battle. And so he said it's not a good idea because even any human king even the best is broken but we have a king we have a king who is utterly selfless we have a king who emptied himself to the extent of the cross we sang that our that we our, our forgiveness was purchased with the precious blood of Jesus Christ that was the price So because of that price, he is our king. That's why Paul says, listen, you were bought with a price. Give your bodies to God, glorify him in your bodies. He is our king. See, the cross says our deepest need is met. Here is the love that will not let you go. Here is the deep security that the creator and sustainer of the universe will never leave you, no matter how poorly you perform. But he is our king. It's not, well, I enjoy sinning and God enjoys forgiving, so let's get it on. Of course not. That's, that's, that forgets the price. Everything you've ever done wrong, all the shame you feel for the people you've wounded, and harmed scooped up by Jesus and taken into himself that's a price he's our king and he spells love O-B-E-Y he said if you love me keep my commands the one who loves me is the one who right through John's gospel and First John epistle if you love me obey is that because He's kind gone on some kind of power troop of course not why is it it's amazing Obedience translates received wisdom into life experience. You ever had that thing where you've got a lot of stuff in here, but it's not changing stuff around here? Obedience makes the... When I do what he's told me to do, then what I know starts to become who I am. So I'm not... You know, I'm, I'm actually living. It's incarnate. When... When did Jesus become the word of God? When he agreed to be born and conceived in Mary. That somehow the God of the universe would contain himself into a beautiful, pure young woman's womb. That's when the word became flesh. It was what was settled before the creation of the earth. But obedience is what makes the difference. And we can't promise to do it. Goodness, that's no better than Peter in the upper room. I'll do it, Lord. Yeah, sure. You won't last till, with love, you won't make it till dawn, mate. But I've prayed for you. When you have turned, all we can do is keep turning back to the Father. Lord, I'm weak, I'm hopeless. That's all. But he's king. So let me wrap it up with this as our worship team come back. Treat him as king. Treat him as king. Treat him as your king. Do what he says, whether you like it or not, because you won't. Okay? You know that, don't you? Your flesh is going to hate it. Do what he says, whether you like it or not. Husbands, lay down your lives for your wives. When she suggests the way to drive or where to park or how you could better... Wives, love your husbands. Submit to them as to... See? It's, it's upset the guitarist already. Just a, do what he says, whether you like it or not, because you own. Accept what he sends, whether you understand it or not. Give what he says. Don't give any more. Trying to be spiritual, one dollar more is disobedience, but don't give any less. Not yours, it's God's. See, we shouldn't have our finance team juggling funds if they heard God right when they set the budget, and we all said they did. As long as we give what He says, they should just be able to wisely allocate, not stress, because He's our King. He's our King. We're not serving Him in an advisory capacity. My wife is praying, which means, Graham, shut up. Would you stand with me? Because I do want this to be a holy moment. I think the Lord has really, I mean, it certainly has challenged me this week. And I know precisely where the challenge is. So Holy Spirit, would you speak to your people now? As, as you have been speaking in the worship and Lord I pray I've stayed out of your way enough that you've spoken through your, through the scriptures listen to the Holy Spirit and, and don't promise to do just say oh God I turn to you I, I raise my hands to receive again lift me Lord, give me the grace to give what you ask. Not just in dollars, of course, in my gifts, in my time. Lord Jesus, show me where I'm building monuments that I might turn to you. And Lord, help me to accept what you send, whether I understand it or not. Let just be with God in this moment as we sing our
0: last song together. About our King, by the way.